This Late Hour presents The Genesis Problem. It is a thing most wonderful, almost too wonderful to be. After that, the hymn rather went off the rails, but those first two lines uh, have inspired me ever since. Inherent in this worldview is that somehow Noah and his family were able to build a wooden ship that would house. 14,000 individuals, there are 7,000 kinds, and then, so it's about 14,008 people. And these people were unskilled. As far as anybody knows, they had never built a wooden ship before. It is a thing most wonderful that on this once barren rock, orbiting a rather mediocre star on the edge of a rather ordinary galaxy, on this rock, a remarkable process called evolution by natural selection has given rise to the magnificent diversity of complexity of life. I need to know if she really thinks dinosaurs were here 4,000 years ago. That's an important. I want to know that. I really do. Because she's going to have the nuclear codes. You know, I, I want to know if she thinks dinosaurs were here 4,000 years ago. The elegance, the beauty, and the illusion of design which we see all around us, brought together by this mechanical, automatic, unplanned, unconscious process, evolution by natural selection. That's not just true, it's beautiful. And it I'm your host, Casey Knowlton. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today begins a new series entitled The Genesis Problem. As we've seen in our previous episodes, the foundation of our theology begins, well, at the beginning. Without a literal understanding of the first book of the Bible, including a literal creation event, Adam and Eve, Fall, Noah, Flood, and Babel, our interpretation of the times in which we find ourselves living in becomes based on the opinions of men rather than on the Word of God. Today's expert class of scientists and historians, some even within our churches, find the idea of a literal genesis laughable, especially if you should consider the earth young, some six to ten thousand years old, versus the mainstream belief of billions of years. Some of you may be asking, but does any of this even really matter? What difference does it make what we believe about Genesis? What does this have to do with the last days? Let us revisit 2 Peter 3, 3-7. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. 
For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Right here, Peter is telling us that these mockers, some of whom we looked at last week, say that the idea of Jesus coming again is absurd. Things are like they've always been, they say. But here, Peter addresses their mockery and unbelief by comparing it to the creation and the flooding of the world, things that are equally mocked today. What we believe about the beginning of man directly affects what we believe about what is going on in this late hour. It impacts our view of man's innate worth, or lack thereof. It shapes our understanding of gender, family, marriage, death, knowledge, evil, and God's wrath and his mercy. To say that it is central to our faith is a dramatic understatement. But how can we really believe any of this? Science has disproven all of it hasn't it? I invite you to join me for this first of a two-part interview with Dr. Ben Scripture from Scripture on Creation Ministries as we delve into the Genesis problem. Well, thank you very much for being with us. I, I'd like to welcome Dr. Ben Scripture to this late hour. And uh, Dr. Ben, how are you? Oh, I'm doing just great. Thanks, Casey. It's nice to talk with you. It's nice to have you with us this morning. Before we get started, I think it'd be good for me to just say a short prayer. Yes, let's do that. Uh, Lord Jesus, just thank you for this time and for this conversation. Lord, we pray that all we say and do would glorify you. And we just ask you to bless this time and bless the technology and all the little various things that would work well and work right. And we just ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Dr. Ben, for those who don't know who you are, uh, perhaps this would be a good time to tell us, who is Dr. Ben Scripture? <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Dr. Ben Scripture is the person that's more of the, at the end of this 67-year-old uh, life of mine. I was born into a preacher's home. So I was born and raised uh, a Christian. Of course, I wasn't born being a Christian, but uh, very early on in my life, I came to know Jesus as my Savior. Thing is, being raised as a preacher's kid, uh, you know, you've heard about those rebellious PKs, and I was one of those. So really in my late high school and then college days, I was far, far from the Lord. My first year college was a Christian school, and then my second was Oxford, uh, Miami University in Oxford, but uh, my desire was to go to Berkeley, and I had a chance to go to Berkeley, so I got my degree in zoology at Berkeley. That's University of California, far from the Lord, as I mentioned. Then uh, the Lord got a hold of me. I uh, had an opportunity to go to Haiti. And the Lord just uh, broke me down there, showed me that I was throwing my life away. And uh, I came back to him. You know, I should really say he drew me back to himself. So I, I then got married. Uh, and my wife and I, Karen, uh, were with our married life serious about following the Lord. So she went to dental school. I put her through dental school by working in a uh, biochemistry lab in Cleveland. 
And that really got me started into practicing science. My degree was in science, but uh, I wasn't doing anything with it. I grew leaps and bounds in the church that we attended and frankly decided to get out of science. So when Karen was done, I went to seminary in Warsaw, Indiana, which is where we now live. We've lived in Warsaw for over 30 years. I got a degree, uh, an MDiv in uh, theology. And then the Lord had other plans for me. I figured I'd just go into a sort of a traditional pastorate, but the Lord had other plans for me. I started teaching at Grace College in the biology department and loved it. So decided I would like to have a career uh, in science again and teaching and went to the University of Notre Dame to really further my education. So I would have the credentials to teach at the college level. Went to Notre Dame and got my PhD in biochemistry. The thing is my teaching never panned out. I, the, the school I was at there at Grace was, wasn't hiring by the time I got my PhD. And we were really so established here in Warsaw that I just decided, you know, we're not going to move. But the Lord opened this door for a ministry in creation. So I was combining my theology degree with my science. And the, the, he just threw the doors wide open. And I developed this scripture on creation ministry. And I've been doing it ever since, as well as being one of the teaching elders in our local church here. So during that time, we had two children. And since that time, each of my two children, my daughter Carolyn has had four kids. My son Luke has had four kids. So we are just enjoying immensely uh, our grandchildren and our family. Everyone's walking with the Lord. We are so blessed. And I keep busy with ministering in the church and keep busy with my scripture on creation ministry. It's a speaking ministry, a radio ministry. So that's who Ben's scripture is. I couldn't ask for a better life. <laughs> well, that's, thank you for sharing. We, all those details are very welcomed and appreciated. Uh, so one of the things that we've kind of been diving into on the podcast is, uh, you know, it's called This Late Hour. I, mm-hmm. just, just looking around and seeing what's going on in the world going, wow, things are not good. And, you know, going back and looking at a lot of what some of the major ministries have been doing in the young earth field, you know, talking about really the disintegration of, of the book of Genesis from really our theology, our churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, many outside the church, uh, and frankly, even within the church, uh, kind of look at this young earth view as kind of this voodoo or some kind of weird, <laughs> right. ignorant, flat earthism. Um, what, how do you respond to, to someone who would hold that view or, or, you know, come at you with that kind of mm-hmm. a response? Well, I think that, especially from the perspective of a worldling, somebody who doesn't believe the Bible at all, I would uh, try to explain to them that they are taking an awful lot for granted. They are just accepting sort of the status quo out there from the uh, scientific community. And they are not evaluating, especially the new kinds of evidence that are being produced from the scientific community, whether we're talking about creation scientists or uh, the, the standard, you know, world's scientific community. There are more and more challenges being mounted. And I would just suggest that they not take so much for granted and be so accepting, but maybe be a little more objective 
and look at the kinds of evidences that are out there and see the kind of challenges that are being mounted. These people that are doing the research, like I said, they're not by any means all creationists, but yet, uh, for example, especially in the area of what we would call intelligent design, there are real challenges being uh, offered out there. And so at least they should recognize that this isn't all just a matter of faith. People must start with faith, but uh, they are evaluating the evidence and recognizing that, you know, there are an awful lot of issues that Darwinism, that the evolutionary worldview cannot answer. In fact, the challenges that uh, really are causing the evolutionists to have to take a very, very defensive position. Sure. Then from the perspective of a person that believes the Bible, I would say you are not um, looking at the kinds of uh, challenges that are being presented by the uh, creation scientific community. You're just accepting uh, what the world says. And I would really ask them to evaluate the kind of uh, different evidences that are out there and maybe reevaluate their just virtual blind acceptance of quote unquote, the scientific community. Sure. No, it's a good point. Now you mentioned that, you know, there are many different new evidences coming out. It's putting a lot of evolutionists on the defensive. Uh, perhaps you'd be willing to share, say five main points that you see giving a strong sort of uh, evidence standing for mm-hmm. the young earth view. Sure. I, uh, first of all, uh, as I just touched on, faith is a crucial uh, foundation for whether you're an evolutionist or a creationist. So uh, first of all, I would say that my evidence uh, comes from trusting the Bible and having a lifetime of experience seeing that the Bible indeed is trustworthy. So the veracity of the history of the Bible, whether it's talking about the history of creation or the history of Israel, uh, the kinds of archaeological evidence that we're finding that supports details about David and so on and so forth. My first evidence is I believe the Bible and there is a ton of reason to trust this book. But from that, you know, there are a lot of uh, specifics when it relates to creation that the Bible just simply doesn't talk about. We could wish, boy, I could wish that there was a lot more about creation, a little more explanation, you know, in there. We get one chapter in Genesis chapter one. And and of course, there's a little more um, information there in two. We get uh, a couple of chapters about the flood. But, you know, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. But what it does say, I would say, is demonstrable from good scientific uh, experimentation. And so uh, uh, you can assume all you want and then say, oh, the Bible is silly. But when you actually look at the kinds of observational evidence that's out there, nothing in the Bible is contradicted by, uh, by science. So my first uh, evidence, I would say, is the Bible itself. Uh, then when we get more to more specific scientific evidences, I would say the most profound evidence that is uh, mounting now is soft tissue in dinosaur bones. And 
you're going to see that most of my evidence has come from the realm of biology because that's my field of expertise. And so I understand these things and find them to be powerful evidences. But this uh, discovery of soft tissue and dinosaur bones is an incredibly powerful evidence for the young earth. That is because one, the evolutionary worldview insists, of course, that the world is billions of years old, right. that uh, life is hundreds of millions of years old, and that uh, the era, in the arena of dinosaurs, especially, you know, they went extinct 65 million years ago. Okay. Mm -hmm. So these bones that we're digging up at a minimum have to be 65 million years old or more. And yet- right. This isn't something that is uh, unusual or there's some weird, quirky, wow, isn't it weird? We found this bone. It seems to have blood vessels and stuff in it. This is becoming common that we are finding soft tissue in dinosaur bones. So those blood vessels, those red blood cells, those literally nerve fibers have been sitting around in the rocks for over 65 million years. That's absurd. They've come up with some hand-waving explanation, which now we are even doing research to demonstrate that that is not accurate. Uh, things about, well, iron causes the, the, the collagen protein to cross-link and it makes it a little firmer and makes it a little stronger. Well, that's all just so layman-ish, if I could use that term. <laughs> People go, oh, well, iron. And so they get in their head the idea that, well, if it's iron, it must be able to last. That's nonsense. It does not uh, enable protein to last millions of years. So what's the big deal? The big deal is how do they ever come up with the idea that that rock was 65 million years old? They're using um, carbon dating. Well, actually, they're using other types of uh, radiometric dating techniques. And those techniques are the reasons why they say this rock is 65 million years old or 100 million years old. Sure. Well, when we know that rock can't be that old, uh, the, the material that we're finding in it, uh, in these dinosaur fossils, can't be that old, then what does that say? That says that those dating techniques are wrong. And so uh, in my mind, the, the proof, and I would use that it's virtually that strong of a term, the proof that these rocks are not that old because we've got soft tissue in them. Uh, completely then throws out the uh, results of these dating techniques that they're using to say that the rocks are 65, 100, even hundreds of millions of years old. I'd like to push into that just a moment for clarity. Okay. I mean, this is really, this should be headline type news. I mean, oh, it's is... held pretty uh, under, the, under the rug. Because <laughs> I mean, if we think back even to some of the popular pop culture of dinosaurs you know the only way you were ever going to get blood was through a mosquito who happened to fall into sap and you know got frozen into this little sap ball and, and preserved wondered how they knew that that mosquito had uh, just sucked on a dinosaur <laughs> don't you <laughs> anyway another mystery of of uh, the past of, uh, jurassic park right yes uh but you know this is the kind of thing that should be you know really all over, you know, instead we're talking about UFOs, but you know, right. The, what should be on, um, I would say at least a good portion of the printed news. Hey, we're finding all of this soft tissue and, you know, clearly 
uh, we've been wrong about this. There seems to be a just an iron fisted grip on, regardless of the evidence, holding to that worldview. Absolutely. And so why, you know, there's like, there's a, I would say a feeling threatened. It seems to come across from a lot of the secular community. And as far as in the scientific field, what, what exactly is that about? And why, why is there this reluctance to just be honest with what the science is showing? Well, if the, trust that the scientific community puts in. And, and uh, when I say scientific community, let me clarify this because there are a number of scientists who do not um, adhere to an evolutionary worldview. More and more scientists, uh, even that are not believers or believe the Bible are uh, adhering to the intelligent design, but they do tend to still adhere to the um, deep time. Uh, but even some of them, I think, are beginning to abandon that. In any event, when I say the scientific community, I'm talking about the majority who indeed are evolutionists, okay? Sure. Their worldview absolutely depends upon uh, deep time. I would suggest that that comes from much more of just, uh, well, to put it bluntly, an imagination. It requires... Uh, the idea that you can just sort of imagine, well, if you have enough time, anything can happen. And so right. to present these ideas, you've sort of got to have in the background, well, you know, we're talking about a hundred million years that uh, these kinds of things could keep uh, attempt, uh, these attempts could continually be made, whether we're talking about chemically or uh, you know, geographically or, or whatever, or geologically, I should say. So um, it, it requires sort of this vague understanding that, well, given enough time, anything can happen. So if you take that away, uh, the masses are just going to abandon this whole idea of, well, yeah, you could get a fish to evolve into a lizard, into a mammal, into a monkey, into a human. You know, uh, right. they know better. So you've got to have this idea that, well, yeah, there's a lot of time out there, so anything can happen. If that becomes challenged, if that is abandoned, then the entire theory of evolution, just the whole imaginary aspect of it, the story of it falls apart, and you just can't have that. So it is held on to, and any challenge, any uh, you know, real trustworthy challenge, a viable challenge of that time frame will just cause the whole thing to collapse. So that's why they hold on to it so strongly and don't even want to talk about it then when there is a viable challenge being made. So like I mentioned, this idea of iron promoting uh, a kind of chemistry that would cause, cause proteins to cross-link and therefore make them very strong and whatever, biochemically speaking, that's laughable. They just do a hand-waving, oh, yeah, that's been explained, how those kinds of tissues could be preserved for that period of time. And then they just move on and don't really, really uh, interact with it. But for most people, that seems to be a good enough explanation, so let's move on. Uh, right. You know, and that happens in a lot of different areas of uh, scientific research. It's surprising to me that uh, people who are in the scientific field uh, which the point of, of performing science is to discover what is true about the world and the universe mm -hmm. around us right. who are literally 
sort of running from what the facts are actually showing in favor of holding to their worldview. Yeah. Well, that's, that's where I, I mentioned there at the very beginning, um, you know, when the assumption is, oh, you're just a flat earther who, who needs to listen to you, where I say, well, why don't you look at the evidence a little more thoroughly? That, that's the thing, Casey. People don't. We're all lazy. You know, we're not going to just keep checking our facts. We, we think we've got the facts, and so we just want to move on. You know, that, that, that phrase, you know, don't confuse me with facts. Well, <laughs> so, so a lot of people don't even understand or know that there are contradictory explanations out there, especially those that are experts in other fields. You know, mm-hmm. they're not biochemists. They're not molecular biologists. And so they hear uh, the quote unquote experts saying, oh, yeah, we've got that explained. And so that's good enough for them. They're, they're not. And frankly, I do the same thing. I, I am not a geologist. And so when uh, a creation geologist say, well, we can explain this particular rock layer or whatever, I just take their word for it <laughs> because I am not going to go back into college and take geology again and then just go through all of this kind of stuff. Now, I do read some of this information and try to grapple with some of it. I, I do try to keep up with it. But, you know, for the most part, the, the biochemists, the paleontologists, they've said, oh, yeah, we've got an explanation for this. And so the astronomers and the geologists and the chemists and all that, they just go, OK. And then they just ignore any contradictory evidence or, or what people say is contradictory evidence. And they just say, you don't know what you're talking about. You're a flat earther type. Um, and they, they just move on. So sure. people will look into it especially in this arena of the soft tissue, I think <laughs> they would be uh, pretty confused if nothing else, because it doesn't take uh, a scientist to recognize that this stuff can't be millions of years old, period. It, it just, it's just, it's simple. And so what's, what does this mean? Well, it means that these dating techniques are wrong. And that is an incredible challenge a very, very disturbing challenge for those that are clinging to the theory of evolution as a, as literally a way of explaining everything. Right. So in these five points of evidence, you had yep. mentioned the trustworthiness of the, of the scriptures themselves. Mm-hmm. And now these amazing discoveries of all these soft tissues and mm-hmm. proteins, blood cells, things that are being found in the fossils of dinosaurs. Uh, what are some other points that you would mention for? Yeah, well, I would, I would say the third, the third area that is really important to me, and now this gets into molecular biology, is what mitochondrial DNA is telling us. Mitochondrial DNA, I'm not going to go into a big, long explanation about this particular material, but it's a, it's a kind of DNA that scientists study to actually date uh, an organism. What this kind of dating is, is showing us is that one, the human, the modern human race is not on the order of hundreds of thousands of years old, unless you assume, and absolutely you have to assume that chimpanzees and humans had a common ancestor 5 million years ago. If you don't assume that, then mitochondrial DNA from the empirical evidence where we're not having to assume anything. We're just comparing DNA from one race to another. Mm-hmm. Uh, the modern human race is on the order of six to 7,000 years old. 
I mean, that's hard evidence. Another thing that we're, uh, mitochondrial DNA shows is that the entire human population on earth stems from three women. Uh, let me ask you quick, Casey, which three women would those be? <laughs> uh, well, let's see. There was Eve. That's and, one woman. And she had other sons and daughters. Yeah. Well, you see, Eve, we could take the mitochondrial DNA and go all the way back to one woman, and we can do that. That's where the, the entire uh, modern human race can be traced back to uh, just being six or 7,000 years old. That's was from it, one woman. Was this the human genome project that you're referring to? Uh, well, no, no. The Human Genome Project is looking at all the DNA, the, okay. the, everything. But mitochondrial DNA is just looking at a little piece of DNA that basically comes from the mother. Okay. So um, it's it, it's hard to explain, and, I, and I, like I said, I, I won't get into it. But anyway, the three women, you even though the entire modern human race essentially comes from one woman, not essentially, it does. Um, when you can, you can break that down into three subgroups or three families, then it is divided into three. Those three, Casey, would be the three wives of Noah's sons. Right. And, and the evidence is firm that you take the entire human population and there are basically three subfamilies. And that would be the three women that were on the ark. So that, that is astounding. Then the other thing is, <clears throat> and, and this, this has become uh, just such a head scratcher that they're just figuring, well, this can't be. 90% of the animal fossils, uh, excuse me, the animal species on earth can trace their lineage back to a common point in time. And uh, even according to their measurements, and that again is using this assumption of the chimp human ancestor of being 5 million years ago to on the order of 100,000 years ago, all species, I, I, let me be accurate, 90% of the animal species on earth all started their lineages about 100 uh, to 150,000 years ago, all at the same time. What's what would cause that according to what the biblical record says? Well, it would have been when they came off the ark and started repopulating the earth. Exactly. And we have strong mitochondrial DNA evidence to demonstrate that. And this is very, very, very new. Uh, within the last couple of years, this kind of work uh, was done, not by creationists, by uh, some scientists out in Washington and, uh, <laughs> so mitochondrial DNA, uh, whether we're talking about what would point back to Eve or point back to the three women on the ark uh, or all the different species that were on the ark is a now, powerful evidence for a young earth. Yes, very much so. A point of clarity. You had mentioned, you know, we can trace this DNA back to six to seven thousand years or uh, something like that mm -hmm. uh, with the, the three women. No. Well, actually, I'm not even sure. The, the three women is more like, uh, I, well, I, actually, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how far back they trace the three sub-families from the, the human family. The, okay. the, the mitochondrial Eve, as she's called, her, her that, that dating goes back to 65 to 7,000 years. 
And I, I'm not sure about what kind of dating the three subfamilies come up with. And then all the animal species, that gets dated back to 100 to 150,000 years. But all of these things that the evolutionary community are dating is are using that chimpanzee human ancestry as, as sort of the, the basic calibration for the quote unquote mitochondrial clock. Okay. That was my point of clarity. So is that why we're seeing a discrepancy between the three women and the animals with as far as the dating? Yeah, I, I don't know. Because like I said, I'm not sure what the, the, the dating of the, the three families is. I've never, I've never looked into that. I just know that, that the entire human population on earth is divided into three main groups. So we have the trustworthiness of scripture. We have all the amazing evidence of the, what's being found in the dinosaur fossils. And now we have this mitochondria DNA uh, evidence going, pointing back to the flood event. Mm -hmm. What yeah, other um, points of, of uh, evidence? First creation yes. and the flood event, especially. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Let me say, let's see. The fourth one I would say is um, the degradation of the human genome. Uh, what I mean by that is, as we are watching how rapidly the human genome is mutating, and these are silent mutations, but of course we are seeing uh, a lot of that in the in the phenotypic. Uh, what I what I mean by that is what you can actually see in, for example, uh, cancers, uh, autoimmune diseases allergies, all these kinds of things where we're just seeing that, man, uh, we are rapidly now uh, accumulating uh, what we understand are genetic diseases. This is happening at a rate when you extrapolate backwards, <laughs> we realize that the human race is extremely young. There's no way that, we, that this kind of degradation could be taking place at the rate it is taking place. And the human race uh, is you know, on the order of a hundred thousand years that the, that the uh, primates go back to 250 million years, so on and so forth. The, well, they're not, my, my date is, I think a little wrong on that. Primates, I think are said to be on the order of more of a hundred million years. I, I'm not, I'm, I need to be more accurate with those kind of numbers. So, but the rate of mutation is demonstrating that just life in general cannot have been on earth for hundreds, even over a billion years in the, in the past. Life can't tolerate the kind of the, the rate of mutation that we're experiencing. Evolution says, oh, you know, things are getting better and better. Well, the evidence is showing that no, DNA breaks down so rapidly that is um, rapidly headed for extinction, all species. Um, and, and this work, by the way, is done by a creation scientist named John Sanford. He was a professor at Cornell. He has his doctorate in genetics. And, uh, you know, he was an evolutionist. And then as he studied uh, genetics to the extent that he did and did a lot of computer modeling, with the rate of genetic decay, he realized that the, the human race has a very short <laughs> time left given the rate of mutation. Uh, I think he is showing that, that in about 5,000 years at the rate that we're uh, mutating, the entire human race will be sterile. 
I, I think this this degradation of it's called genetic entropy, by the way. Okay. At the rate that we're mutating, you can't go backwards and come up with the the human race being around for as long as the evolutionary theory requires. Genetic entropy, I guess I would say, is the is the fourth major evidence for uh, a young Earth. Most of these things, from my perspective, are are biological, and that's because sure. that's the stuff that I understand. And I, I just look at those things and I say to any biologist, these things can't be ignored. Uh, you can try and explain them away, but nobody is. And so how do you, how do you hold to a young earth when there are such powerful evidences out there, uh, empirical evidence, not just hand-waving, not just, well, it has to be, you know, the earth has to be old. So whatever evidence come, we come up with simply must be wrong. Deal with it. Give responses from good research that would contradict these kinds of evidences that are piling up within the life science community. Well, and as a you know, point there, the entropy that you mentioned, uh, that, you know, that's a, that's a very startling thought and one that could be, <laughs> well, frankly, lead to some depression and hopelessness for those outside of Christ. I mean, we're talking about basically we're all going extinct. Right. If we, oh, absolutely. Have, if we don't have an understanding of the salvation work of Christ, we're all just going back to the ashes. We're all going back to the dust. We're all going back to the goo, I guess, for, for many who would believe in that worldview. But uh, we understand that we're under the curse of sin and that this is what we'd be, we would be and should be witnessing uh, if that were true. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the thing that fascinates me about this is that this was something that God intentionally imposed on the earth back at least at the time of the flood. Now, it may very well be that God did this, uh, you know, at the fall. Right. But, uh, you know, people were still living to be over 900 years old at that point. So it seems to me that the, the real beginning of the degradation of the genome of not just humans, but of all organisms really began in earnest after the flood. We, we can trace back the accumulation of mutations. Uh, th this is more mitochondrial DNA work, actually, to about 5,000 years. And so if the flood occurred at about that time, um, five on the order of 5,000 years or so ago, then it's at that point that mutations began to rapidly uh, accumulate. Before that time, it, it seems like even from the lifespans of humans, mutations were not uh, accumulating that dramatically. So God intentionally changed the earth uh, as a result of the flood, uh, not just geologically, but it, it appears biologically in the sense that now mutations would begin to accumulate and everything was going to live uh, shorter and shorter periods of time. And I do think that God points that out in Genesis chapter six, he says the lifespan of man will be 120 years. I don't think he's talking about that the flood is coming in 120 years. I think that he's talking about he's going to bring the lifespan of man down to a maximum of 120 years. So God intentionally has done this to bring face to man face to face with the idea that you are uh, you are dying. 
And mm. there's nothing that you can do to change it, even though man loves to promote this idea of, oh, genetic engineering, and, and we're going we're gonna to fix all of our genetic problems, and we're going to start living longer and longer. Research shows that that isn't happening. Even though the average lifespan is uh, increasing, the maximum is not. And, and by the way, that's my fifth point. Like I said, my, my uh, evidences are all from the uh, biological point of view. So this doesn't talk anything about uh, from geology, from astronomy, and all these other perspectives that uh, other creation scientists are experts in. Sure. But I think some, you know, some of those are very, very powerful. The, the aging research that is going on is showing that uh, 120 or a little less is the maximum lifespan of human beings. And even though the average or the mean is increasing, the maximum is not. And I would uh, submit that that, is, that points back to the trustworthiness of what God said in Genesis chapter six, yeah. um, where he said, uh, you, you know, why don't, we, why don't I read that rather than just sort of referring to it? Sure. Uh, Genesis 6, 5, then the Lord saw that uh, the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. When, when God saw this, of course, he, he found Noah. But one of the things that he was thinking about was in verse three, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So God's intent, uh, in my understanding, and the way I interpret that, is that as a result of the flood, he was going to bring the lifespan of man down to 120 years. And uh, instead of these people being able to live for 900 years and just develop and devise uh, grander and more horrific ways of sinning, he said, that's it. 120 is the max. And re aging research is demonstrating the validity of that. So that's my fifth uh, evidence for why we have a, a young earth. The account of the flood in, in uh, changing earth, uh, and this was on the order of uh, five to 6,000 years ago, again shows us the, the length of, the period of time the earth has been around is, is young, is short. Thank you for joining me today for the first part of my interview with Dr. Ben's scripture on the importance of Genesis. Today we learned a bit about Dr. Ben and listened to his top five points of evidence supporting a literal Genesis, including a young earth. Part two of the interview will be available on the last Friday of August, so I'd welcome everyone to come back and join us as we continue in the Genesis problem. If you are enjoying these podcasts, please give the show a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, please click on the ACAST supporter link or visit my Patreon page where I recently posted a great bonus episode, which can be found in the show notes. If you have questions or comments, please send us an email at thislatehourpodcast at gmail.com or visit our Twitter at Casey Knowlton or the Facebook page This Late Hour. Thank you so much for joining me for this fourth episode of This Late Hour and our first in the Genesis problem. Stay on the alert, dear Christian. Until next time, God bless. You have been listening to This Late Hour. Your contribution helps pay our fees, improve our equipment, and build better content. It is my hope that your continued support of our show may bring future interviews and exclusives. Our goal is to always be improving our show 
so that the church may be strengthened in our mission to bring salt and light to this present darkness. May God richly bless you.